Alrighty, guys. Um, so uh, today we want to talk about uh, what does it look like to uh, follow Jesus in terms of lordship, his lordship in our lives, and what does it look like to help somebody who wants to follow Jesus, who doesn't know much about him, probably doesn't know him as Savior or Lord. And uh, I think it's important that the church uh, have a divine format uh, <laughs> to work uh, through. And by divine format, all I mean is uh, a path that has been prescribed by God in the New Testament. Uh, things that Jesus said, Paul said. So we have an idea, okay, so this is how we go about the Lordship of Christ in our lives, and this is how we can introduce the Lordship of Christ into other people's lives. And um, um, that's what we want to talk about. And uh, it's part of this whole idea of becoming a prevailing church, because the intent is, can we engage, contend with, and then be able to press through to the end with the world and the people in the world? Because God... I know you know this, but God laid down the life of his son, Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sake of the world, not for Christians. For the sake of the world, not for Christians. So here are some things we need to know about the lordship of Christ and our witness in the world and how God wants to work through it all. There is a divine format, and the divine format is found in Matthew 28, 19 and 20 where it says, go, make disciples, fall nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have taught you. So there is a format to this. It's not random. Paul followed it. Jesus taught it. And, and, and these steps are not necessarily... Um, uh, well, yeah, let's, let's go there a little later. Guys, so here are the things we need to understand. That when it comes to this church in the world, we have to first get this right. Personal lordship. After which we have to get right standing right. Once we accept him as Lord and understand him as Lord, we need a right standing with God, as in be in right relationship with him after his lordship. Then we have to get into this place called right living. And after we finish right living, I, I don't want to say after we finish right living. Why, uh, it's because it's not sequential. It can be continuous. Then we move into public lordship. These are four steps that we as the church must practice. We begin here. We begin here. We begin with the personal lordship of Christ established in our life. The personal lordship of Christ established in our life. Now that he is lord of our lives, we now have to learn how to be in right relationship with the lord of our life. Right relationship or right standing. We have to learn how to be in right relationship or right standing with the lord of our lives. Because very often that's not the case. We acknowledge him as lord, but 
Churches are full of Christians who can declare Christ as Lord, but are not able to move into a vibrant, right relationship with God, just like Jesus had with the Father. After that, we come to right living. Now that we are in right relationship and he is the Lord of our life, it should show in right living. This is why Paul was so um, emphatic on the ethical living of a Christian. He said that you are holy, therefore show yourselves holy. The essence of all of Paul's letters was to emphasize ethical living. Well, what, is, what does Christian living look like? And once we get that, then we can begin to now publicly uh, make obvious this culture that Christ has created in us individually and as a people. Now people begin to see, ah, so that's what a Christian looks like, not the other version. This is what Christ looks like. What happens very often is you can go from personal lordship to public lordship. And when that happens, you miss out on right relationship and right living. And this you will often find in churches where the emphasis is tremendously on grace, 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 grace. When the grace message is preached like crazy, it is possible for people to immediately accept him as Lord and then begin to live out their um, Christian life in the public without going through right standing and right living. Because everything is covered by grace. You have accepted Jesus Christ. Now Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. Grace, 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 grace. This is the um, hyper grace um, 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 pit that you can fall into. When, when there is no need to develop right relationship. When there is no need to develop right living. Because everything is covered by grace. That's one danger. The other danger is when you go from personal lordship to right living without right relationship. So this is the result of hyper-grace. And this can be the result of legalism. So one is the result of hyper-grace where you can go straight from lordship into now that I'm saved, now that all my sins are forgiven, now that God is my father, now that he's full of forgiveness, every time things go wrong, I can run to him and just say grace, grace, grace. The other aspect is when you go from personal lordship into right living without right relationship. That's when it's legalism. When now you've accepted Christ as Lord and now the emphasis is live right, live right, live right. Don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. And everything is coming not out of a place of relationship but out of a duty or an obligation of fear. That is when legalism kicks in. We have to go through these stages, not sequentially, but keep it in mind so that we are continuously moving in that area. Any questions before we go on? Any questions? Yeah, yeah. Any questions, guys? Okay. So, let's start with personal lordship then. Personal lordship. Personal lordship. Personal lordship would require that 
Uh, I be aware of him as savior and master. I be aware of him. I be aware of him as savior and master. Uh, this is very simple. Everybody knows this. But the reason I'm repeating it is so that as we go out into the world, we have certain things settled in our minds about what things look like. We can develop on it. I'm not saying this is the end all uh, of how to go about things. But if we have these things set in my mind, when I talk to somebody, I know that these are things that God requires of me to convey or to demonstrate or to teach or to example so the first thing when it comes to personal lordship in my life or through my life to somebody else who's a, not a believer is they have to become aware that Jesus Christ must be received or acknowledged as savior and as master. Sometimes the word Lord doesn't make sense. Therefore, we have to go for words like master. Two, we like saying that Christianity is not a religion. It's a personal relationship. As true as that is, it is also not true. Christianity is a religion. It has a belief system. The moment anything has a belief system, it is a religion. And in that sense, yes, Christianity comes out of a personal relationship. But it's not just a personal relationship. There is a belief system. So we can't avoid that. It is a religion based on a personal relationship. And if it's a religion, then it is essential that I help, I learn the belief systems, the belief system I'm part of. If I don't learn it, I can't teach it. I must learn it, I must teach it. I must learn it, then I can teach it. I must learn it, then I can teach it. 1 Timothy 4.16 1 Timothy 4.16 A belief system is made up of doctrine. Ugly, ugly words that churches like ours avoids. Doctrine seems to put everything in a box. But there are certain things that are in a box that's continuously expanding. 1 Timothy 4.16 You don't have to think out of the box when it comes to God because God's box keeps expanding. 1 Timothy 4.16 1 Timothy 4.16 Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What a beautiful verse. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And these are some essentials of doctrine that I would suggest to you we don't know and that we should know. And uh, I got this from someone else and he broke it into these words. What are these things called? Acronyms. Educated people I'm preaching to. So belief system. Uh, and this is where sometimes um, we as Christians fail because we think this belongs to churches that are um, 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 not uh, charismatic or not vibrant. So that's for them. We just, we just depend on the Holy Spirit. It's for the rest of them. But it's so important to know deity, the deity of Christ. Is he fully man? Is he fully God? 
Is he both? Is he half man? Is he half God? What is he? Why does he call himself the son of God, son of man? Fascinating how most of us won't know. Uh, no, probably most of us will know. But it's fascinating how many don't know. Second, original sin. Original sin. How did sin enter? What did sin do? What did I lose because of sin? What did Jesus do to fix it? Third, the canon of scripture. As in, how did the Bible come along? Why did they choose these books? Why were some books left out? What's the reasoning behind it? Fourth, Trinity. Do we believe in three gods or do we believe in one God? Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Hard to explain so we leave it alone. Why not explore it? Fourth one, resurrection. Did it actually happen? Was it a figment of imagination? What actually happened? Why is Christianity based solely on the resurrection of Christ? If he didn't rise, then 1 Corinthians 15 says, we are pathetic people. Next one, incarnation. When God took on flesh and became man and will forever be a high priest before God. How, how does it work? What does it now mean for us to be incarnational? It's, I don't even want to ask these questions because it sounds profound and I don't know all the answers. New creation. What does it mean to be born again, to be made new? What does it mean? What became new? Yeah, and the work of the Holy Spirit in making you new. And the last one, big word that I had to go to college for, Bible school for, eschatology, which is how does this all work out in the end? What's God's future for us look like? How does this conclude? How does, how does this world continue? What does it look like? These are the essentials of doctrine. And may I suggest to you that we wouldn't be able to necessarily come up with reasonable sound uh, answers if someone with a seeking mind actually questioned us on it. We, we'll have vague answers, but not concrete answers to a true seeker. To a true seeker. I'm not talking about people who want to argue because you can argue till the cows come home. Do cows come home? They do, huh? okay. Um, so, um, pardon? <laughs> Hamburgers do come home, but cows, I was never sure. Anyways, so, um, yeah, so, so guys, um, uh, when I realized that I didn't know this, I went and bought resources so that I could learn it. Because I didn't have clear, a clear way of speaking these things. Not a complicated way, a clear way to a normal seeker because most of us don't work in academic circles. Some of us do, but most of us need to give simple answers for all these. So when it talks about the personal lordship of Christ, we want to avoid this completely because we just want to say Jesus is Lord. But it ain't enough. Not in today's world, eh? Not in today's world.
Not in today's world. This isn't a Judeo-Christian culture. It requires answers. And the last one. Um, so the first one was an awareness of being your, Jesus being your savior and master. Two was a belief system. And the third one is a willingness to confess him publicly. A willingness to confess Jesus publicly. A willingness to confess Jesus publicly. So if this is A, this is B, and this is C. When these three things are going together and you are functioning and in, uh, increasingly growing in this, you know that you're coming to this, coming, coming to that place where you can say, yeah, I understand the personal lordship of Christ. I'm aware of him as uh, savior and master. I understand what he has taught, what he is about. I know the doctrine that I follow. And then I am not just someone who has accepted him personally and keeps it quiet. I'm willing to confess him openly. And one of the first signs of an open confession is baptism. It was very natural for Christians to be baptized. Guys, some of us may be thinking right now, but this is stuff that I know. Yes, but we're setting it down in a format that Jesus had set it down so that when we talk to others, we can go down this path eventually. This may take a person nine months, so be it. But we go down this path. Baptism is a first sign of an open confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. And for those who come from Christian backgrounds, Hindu backgrounds, Muslim backgrounds, Buddhist backgrounds, baptism is that place where you are publicly declaring that I belong to someone. I remember when I decided to get baptized because my dad came from a church that believed in infant baptism and did not believe in believers being baptized. I remember going and telling him finally, I, I got baptized without telling him because I knew it would cause havoc. Finally, when I did go and um, uh, tell him, I was a grown-up guy by now, not a kid. He slapped me straight across my face. And I thought to myself, you just slapped me. And I had just gotten baptized, but the reaction inside me wasn't very baptist -y. I mean, I had to storm out of the house because I was scared of how I would respond. So there will be opposition. Doesn't matter which background you come from, because there is something about baptism that is so stark in terms of the dividing line that it's not easy. But as the first open sign of confessing him before men. And it says in uh, Luke 9, 26, it says that if you will, uh, if you're not ashamed of me before men, I will not be ashamed of you before the Father. And so it also goes on to say, but if you're ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before the Father. Yeah. Yeah. See, you said so many nice things about me. I just think you and I should preach together today. 
guys, any questions on the personal lordship of Christ? On what we just talked about? Any, any questions? Uh, no. Uh, okay, well, meaning uh, it would, uh, I could say more, but it would take very long. I, I was thinking of eschatology as in God's, um, I like Isaiah 46, which says, he knows the end from the beginning. And that for me kind of summarizes it. When he started this, he knew how he wanted it to go. And at the end of the day, that is what I define it as. God seeing his people right from the, he's seeing the end from the beginning, knowing this is what I wanted my people to be. And when he said people, he wasn't meaning Christians, he was meaning people, as in his people. This is what he wanted for them. So it is not something I'm waiting for in the future, and yet it is something I'm waiting for in the future, but it is what his people ought to be right now. So for me, Isaiah 4610 kind of sums it up, but it's such a poor definition. But if I had to go into long definition, I could. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, uh, Maurice. Okay. Any other questions? Or anything you want to add to the eschatology, poor eschatology definition that I just gave? Because it's not about the temple in Jerusalem. It's not about uh, the new heavens and the earth. And yet it's about all that except the temple, which is already torn down and rebuilt. So please don't send money to Israel for temples. Yeah. Isaiah 4610. Uh, if I'm wrong... Um, you can correct me later. Any questions, guys? Okay. Guys, see, for, for the Holy Spirit to sculpt truths into our lives, um, he sculpts truths into our lives through one anothering, through... House church or church, whatever you want to call it, and gatherings wherever, whenever teaching or instruction happens. This is, this is the Holy Spirit's way of teaching us. I've said this before and I need to say this again because these are truths that are not learned in isolation. He just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. It's so important to emphasize this at this stage because we mustn't forget these things. Eh? The Holy Spirit instructs. Can he teach you directly? Yes. Does, what's his preferred method of teaching? His preferred method of teaching is, Jacob, can I teach you through others? Through one anothering. Because I don't want you to be someone who is not dependent on others. Two, I'll teach you through the church. Why? Because the church is called the pillar of truth and there the bridegroom reveals himself fully. I've also appointed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors and evangelists for the equipping of the saints. So I'm going to use that method because I authored the word and I've said it there. And third, wherever there is gathering, wherever there is teaching, wherever there is instruction, I'll use those times to teach you. Will you hear from me personally? Yes. But where will most of the teaching of truth happen? In the context of others. This is a hard thing to accept, but this is, a, this is reality. The Bible talks about it again and again and again. We pick on verses like, the Holy Spirit will bring you into all truth. True. Absolutely true. But through people. 
I don't think there's anything I have taught over the last 12, 13 years here that didn't start through somebody else and then the Holy Spirit added things to it. There's nothing that I have taught that isn't copyrighted by the Spirit of God who brought it in through somebody else. Very little original teaching in this church. Things have been added on, things have been presented a certain way, See, the reason this goes into effect is because truths are on one hand cultural principles and the reason I call them cultural principles is because we are developing a culture through these truths. These truths when practiced give visibility to the kingdom culture. Truths are principles, cultural principles are principles and therefore they must be practiced together. They must be practiced together. They must be practiced together. Two, truths are proceeding, as in truths don't stand stagnant. They proceed. I'll explain that. Guys, I've said this before and I'm saying it again. And, uh, this is in topic. Don't think I'm going off on a detour. Every truth of God is absolute, but all truths of God keep unfolding. Keep unfolding. The word of God keeps proceeding. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God's truths keep unfolding. Therefore, it is necessary for me to be able to learn from others through whom the Holy Spirit will bring to light a new dimension of the truth that I did not know before. It is often brought to me through people. Occasionally the Holy Spirit will shine his light and immediately I'll take it and go verify it with others because I've got to make sure that I'm not running in vain. Paul did this. Paul said, and I had Christ come and tell me this. And not that I wanted to confer with flesh and blood, but I did go to the apostles in Jerusalem and I spoke with them and said, am I running the right path because I don't want to run in vain? So, because truth is proceeding, once again, I must discuss it with you. Dissect it with you. This is so important, so important. When you think you have found the truth in the Bible, go discuss it with someone, dissect it with someone who will parry your every thrust and will begin to be like iron that sharpens iron. Otherwise, when we don't go down this route, truths become errors that you continue down into two, three, four generations. And lastly, truth is a principle, truth is a proceeding, and truth is a person. And because truth is a person, it is important that it display his nature. It display his nature and it be relational. Just think of that. In the, it, when it comes to Christianity, no other religion is this true. But when it comes to Christianity, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to tell you the truth. He did say that too. 
But he said, I am the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. In Christianity, truth is a person. And therefore, any truth must be relational. It, this is why we never have to go sit on Grouse Mountain for 20 days doing penance. Christianity is not practiced in isolation. It's always relational. I know you've heard this before, but for new uh, guys who've come in the last couple of years, I mean, they're, they're, we have an amazing friend called Eddie in this church who hasn't visited for a while. Someone came up to his dad and said to his dad, oh, I, I, you know, I'm intensely spiritual. And his dad asked a simple question to this intensely spiritual guy. He asked the guy, who are you spiritual with? Because it is not possible to be spiritual if you're not spiritual in relationship. That is where spirituality is exposed. All the fruit of the Holy Spirit cannot exist except in relationship. Love, peace, joy, all of them exist only in relationship. Therefore, because truth is a person, it must display his nature and it must be relational. Why am I suddenly going here? Because guys, where we are going as a church, it is necessary that we become heavily reliant on each other when it comes to truths. When it come, comes to the practice of principles, we must practice them together. It's when you practice truths together that the net doesn't tear when the fish are hauled in. There are two stories in Luke. In Luke chapter 5, there was a lot of fish that were caught by the disciples when Jesus said, cast the net on the other side. And as they began to haul the net in, guess what happened? The net began to tear. And then, in, at the end of John, there is a story of 153 fish being caught. And there it says, even though the number of fish was huge, the nets did not break. Nets don't tear when a people decide that they will practice truths together because this becomes a cultural principle. It becomes a culture that we observe. A whole group of people practice it. Not one or two or three. No, everybody practices it. Everybody practices it. Secondly, truth is proceeding. Therefore, if I hear something, it is good to come and discuss it with you, dissect it with you, bounce it off you. Because in doing that, you may add something that I have not seen. And now I think to my mother, oh, shucks, I hadn't seen that. I mean, most of the time I won't admit when you guys come up with a nugget of truth because I'm the pastor. I can't admit I didn't know that. But you'll be surprised at how many times when I've been involved in discussions with you and you ask a question or you say something and inside me tube lights are going off but outside me I pretend like, of course I knew this. Well, that's vanity. We'll deal with that another day. <laughs> but the point is this. So many times in your questions and your comments, I think to myself, oh, shucks, I never saw that. But keep it quiet. And lastly, the truth is a person. Therefore, you must display his nature. If you're practicing a truth, it must display his nature. One of the greatest problems with Christians is that we display truth without displaying his nature. And you cannot separate Jesus from his, the, the truths he speaks because he is it. Therefore, when I practice a truth without his nature being conveyed, it ain't the truth. It just ain't the truth. It must display his nature and it must be relational. It must be relational. And this is very important because if we are saying that we are a people who are going to proclaim the gospel, 
penetrate places with the gospel, cause it to progress. Then if the gospel is true, if Jesus is true, then in everything we do, it must be relational. It can't be from the good old days. The good old days were never good, by the way, just so you know. It's a myth. The older I get, the better it's getting. The good old days, they had black and white photographs, no microwaves. Oh, okay, sorry, I got carried away. I was just thinking of how difficult it was to heat food. Now it's so easy. But, but sorry, we don't need to go there. Where were we? The good old days. These are the good old days. Guys, where were we? We were at some very critical... Truth. Yeah. See, so, so here's the thing. There was a time when you could go stand in front of a people and announce the gospel in a big crusade and thousands would come to the front. With the death of Billy Graham, that era is over. It used to work in this part of the world. In other parts of the world, it worked, but not necessarily well. One of the things that happened in Asian and South Asian countries is Christianity was a mile wide and two centimeters thick. People who got saved again and again and again, but didn't know better. Make disciples of all nations, yes. But one life at a time through relationship. You take Jesus and you will see it again and again and again. You will see the way Jesus went about it. Crusades aren't the way to go, guys. One man conducting a crusade. No, now the church is the evangelist. The church is the teacher. The church begins to take on a governing apostolic role. The church begins to speak the will of God and becomes prophet. The church becomes the one that shepherds the sheep, binds up the wound, feeds them. A people, not one individual. If there was, I need to say this so that we are clear about this, not because I want to put a black mark on that man, but if there was one thing that Billy Graham changed to the detriment of the church, it was when he pulled himself out of the church and started an organization called the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And that began the departure of every gifted evangelist from the church to an organization when the church was supposed to be the one that did it. Yeah. Yeah. God has formats that he gives us. Let me use a different word. God has frameworks he gives us that we are supposed to work within. But he wants us to understand that, Jacob, you may have a formula right now, and it's worked brilliantly many times. But can you be open to my truth? Because it's proceeding and it'll unfold a little more. Discuss it with people. Learn new ways. God has a framework. We may have principles that we understand and practice together. There'll be new principles added to it. God has a framework. Truth is a person. Jacob, when you relate to people, when you tell them about me, can you make sure that you don't come out with your standard lines and that you first relate to them? Approach evangelism in a very different way. 
approach the proclamation of the gospel differently like my son used to do. So what does that look like? We'll talk about that right now. Bearing witness to Jesus as Savior, what does it look like? What should it look like? One, guys, first thing, I must be relational. Guys, we live in Vancouver. This city thrives on either a lack of relationality or intense relationality. You go out on August 1st when the Pride Parade takes place in downtown, downtown and you will see relationality of a, uh, between the spectators and the ones who are parading. I'm not lifting it up. I'm saying it's a perverse um, situation, uh, at least based on what the Bible says and what we believe. But relationality, this city thrives on. Why, why do we assume that Christianity can progress in this place without relationality by standing and preaching it or inviting people into the church? doesn't work that way. Jesus knew this ages ago. He was like this. I must be relational. I'm, and see the person in the image of God. I must be relational and see the person as one made in the image of God. Distorted, distorted at present, needing restoration. Distorted at present, needing restoration. Why is this important? Because as soon as you begin to see the person like this, this brings joy, compassion, desire for that person to know the Lord. It is critical that we get this first. When you, when you see a person you're talking to, when you, that you're encountering in a lift, in an elevator, that you're meeting on the road, remember this. This is one of the first steps. I must be relational. You're not, you're not a notch on my six gun. You're not a scalp I want to collect. It doesn't matter which line I use. Both are racist. Um, at the end of the day, I must be relational to, I must see you as made in the image of God. Uh, and when I see you made in the image of God, then compassion comes up in my heart because I know that the only difference between you and me is that you are made in the image of God and your image is completely distorted as mine used to be. But all it needs is restoration and Jesus Christ is the only one who can restore it. Now there is compassion. Now the compassion does something. Compassion makes me even more relational. Compassion makes me relational. Now there is joy. With joy will come the hope and the expectancy that into this person's life can come Christ as he did in mine when thousands, not thousands, when a few, no, not even a few hundreds, when about 30 people gave up on me. And it brings desire. Do you realize how critical this is, guys? And do you realize how rarely we go down this route? It is not the first thought that comes into your mind. It was usually the first thought that came into Jesus' mind. Made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. Once you know that, it fuels desire in you. The kind of desire that wants you to go an extra mile. It causes you to have compassion, saying you are made in the image of God. It is distorted right now, but it shall be restored because mine was and I am restored. And there is suddenly joy in this whole idea of witnessing to who God is. 
Second, I must gauge where the person is at. I must gauge where the person is at. This is another thing we don't do. I must gauge where the person is at. Father, where is this person at? Gauge means I must, I must fathom. I must, I must try to understand. I must try to understand. I must try to... Give me another word, guys. I must try to understand. I must perceive. Discern is a good word. You win. You will get an honorarium. Uh, that is twice as much as what Derek and Jeevan get. Yeah. Uh, I must discern. I must discern where a person is at. Jesus did this. You can see it. When he's with Nicodemus, he discerns where Nicodemus is at. To begin with, he knows. If a guy comes to visit me in the middle of the night, doesn't need much discernment there. The guy's scared. And then he begins this conversation with him. He discerns where the rich man is at. And he also discerns that there's no point pursuing this rich man or hammering anything further because he's going to walk away because his riches are way too blinding right now. He discerns where Zacchaeus is at. And he knows that for this man who's been an outcast thrown aside by most people, the thing that'll break his life open is very simple. Visit him in his house. He discerns where Levi is at. It is such an important part of witnessing that we have completely lost out. Why? Because we quickly want to give the message of Jesus and get it done with. Oh my God, if I can wait to one, recognize the image of God that she is made in, distorted as it may be, but will need restoration, can be done. And then if I can gauge where she is at, this is where she is at life. And now I have the ability to deal with her as I would Nicodemus or Levi or Zacchaeus or whoever. And you will find that the words you speak go through the person like a knife through butter, but... I've never found that to be true. Every time I've taken a knife to butter, it's a blooming solid block. And by the time I put it on my piece of bread, it just destroys the life slice of bread. But then that would mean waiting. <laughs> Anyways, cows coming home, knife. <laughs> Pardon? Microwave it, yeah. I told you, these are the good old days. <laughs> Anyways, uh, some of these phrases just don't work. Knife through butter ain't true. Cows come home, haven't seen it yet. So, this is so important, guys. Third one. I must make use of every chance. I must make use. That's how the message puts it in... Uh, uh, Ephesians 5:14 to 17 it says I'm, I, I must make use of every chance to further God's intent. I must make use of every chance use of every chance. I must make use of every chance to further God's intent, further God's intent, which then begs the question, manner, meaning what is it? Sorry, getting too cute here. Basically, you have to ask, what is it, O oh God? What's your intent in this chance encounter? What is your intent in this chance encounter? Is this your... Uh, uh, because... 
what if it is healing that is required first? What if it is money that is required first? What if it is food that is required first? What if it is just kindness that is required first that will open this person up? What is it that is required? Oh God, what is your intent? This is part of the gauging, but I must make use of every chance, every encounter. I was going up um, the elevator a few days ago and I saw an older man carrying a large plank of wood looked like he could carry it, but I just said, um, hey, do you want help? Um, because that's what I sensed God prompting me to say. And I knew what he would say. He would say, no, thank you. But do you know how many times I've met that man in the last five days? Four. And every time he and I meet now, and it's very unusual to meet this man four times in a building with that many people. Four times I've met him. Today when I was driving out to church, he was driving in, saw him again. I even know the floor he lives on. But, but I'm thinking to myself, oh, shucks, father of all the people, him. So what's the intent? What's the intent? This is like an adventure that you're on and God knows the end from the beginning. So ask the intent. Make, I must make use of every chance I get to further God's intent. And to present and to present Jesus, and to present Jesus, present Jesus' story in my life, Jesus' story in my life. Must make use of every chance. Because if you can turn a person to see the story of Jesus in your life, you will take the veil away. Second Corinthians three three sixteen. When someone turns to Jesus, the veil is lifted up. And the person is no longer blind. Enjoy it, guys. I mean, you heard the stories of Jesus in your life today. And those are just the big ones. What about the small ones? We could keep God here till the evening. When you tell the story of Jesus in your life, you're presenting Jesus. And every time Jesus Christ is presented, the veil is lifted people begin to see the blindness is removed. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about it. 3.16 talks about it. Make use of every opportunity, every chance you get, make use of it. Do you realize that there won't be a single person you will come across tomorrow who wasn't a chance encounter, that everything God can arrange so that they bump into you who carry Jesus, who carries you. It just blows my mind that tomorrow there'll be so many people that I come across, some that I recognize, some that I know, some that I don't know, but none of them will be people that happen to happen. They will be people that haven't been programmed, but God knows beforehand. God knows beforehand. If only Jacob could be a little more aware. Next one. I must have clarity in what I say and do. I must have clarity. I must have clarity in what I say and do. I must have clarity in what I say and do. I must have clarity in what I say and do. First Peter 3.15. First Peter 3.15. It says, in every situation, have a defense for the reasonable hope that you have in Jesus. Meaning, be able to speak about it. Why is it that you believe in Jesus? 
and let it be a reasonable defense. Why do I believe in, why do you believe in Jesus, Jacob? Because I'm a sinner and he saved me. Really? But I am not, so I guess I don't need him. No, you got to, there's got to be more than that. This is why relationality helps tremendously. One-liners don't help much. I was um, uh, choosing songs today and there's one song called The King of Love. And there's a line in that verse which says, my lover's breath is sweetest wine. And I'm thinking to myself, if some person who does not know Christ walks in and hears us singing that line, he'll wonder what we are up to. <laughs> my lover's breath is sweetest wine. Therefore, it is important to be relational. Any questions on these four before we go to the last three and then we are done for now? We won't even go into right standing because that's a long one too. Um, any questions on these? Anything you want to add to these? Am I missing out stuff? Order this in your head, guys. Mark was telling me how he goes home and then he takes these notes and then he goes over them uh, and kind of sets it in his head. Why? Because he will be working throughout the week and during the week he works with people from different trades, many of them who do not know Jesus Christ. And once he reads these notes and goes over them, he has them set so that during the week, if anything comes, he pulls out of the storehouse old and new, as it says in Matthew 13. So how does this help me? It gives me a framework. Doesn't mean that this is how we follow, but I know this is where I can go. Okay, last three. Next one is, I won't forget that only the good news of Jesus Christ rescues people. I won't forget that only the good news of Jesus has the power to rescue people. From sin, penalty of sin, death, sickness, danger, Satan, false doctrine. I won't forget that because the kind of Christianity we practice is the kind of Christianity that either costumes the cross or completely avoids the cross. And that kind of Christianity is not worth anything. It's a Joel Osteen brand of Christianity and I deliberately took his name. There are other wonderful things he says which you must follow, but not, not when it comes to this area. I must not forget that it is always the good news of Jesus Christ who came down to the earth. God coming down to the earth as man and then dying on a cross for my sins. The, the ability to explain that, to have clarity in my explanation, to think it through. Father, I'm going to meet this person today who's not a believer. Where is he located at? Would you show me Holy Spirit? What is it that your intentions are? 
can you help me explain this clearly paul was astute at this how come when he goes to athens and stands on mars hill that he has a completely different approach how come when he stands in front of the jews he has a completely different approach then go to acts 26 and 27 and see how he speaks before felix and agrippa and it's a completely different approach why is it that paul could do that because besides being led by the spirit and trusting that the holy spirit will supply the words when you stand before people there was thought put into things guys we are working at something we are working at the expansion of a kingdom no emissary no ambassador goes into a meeting unprepared unless of course you're meeting putin one on one with an interpreter that's different but otherwise people go in prepared we are expanding this work ain't for unprepared nambi pambi babies this is hard work for a king who commands great respect i haven't had tv for 3 or 4 days it has been some of the most um constructive times in my life the amount of time i spend before the tv i realize is ridiculous now that the tv is in there don't worry it'll be coming back but the point is this, that it's fascinating how much time you can save and work on other things as just on the side the point being this guys please this is not um this is not um a walk in the park a vacation this is work that is done out of rest but there is no laziness in this there is a work ethic to this but it's done out of rest because you can't do anything to save anybody but there is no laziness in this a part of the reason the church is lazy is because there are evangelists who go out on behalf of the church but guess what acts 29 has no evangelists next point um I must pray for the one I encountered. I must pray for the one I encountered. I must pray for the one I encountered. So I've begun to pray for that man. I've, I must pray for the one I encountered. Sometimes I pray, oh God, can you take it a little deeper? Can you give me time with him? Other times it is, Father, I don't know if I'll meet him again. but uh, can i just bring him to you and pray that what i have started could you finish and i will trust the work of the holy spirit i must pray for uh, the people i encounter and i must trust the work of the holy spirit i must trust the work of the holy spirit i was thinking of printing some cards just with our website on it uh and you carry just two of them in your wallet because there are some times where you will meet a person only once or twice or maybe once and if they show even remote interest say hey you can read more on more about this on this website and give them the card all it will say is acts29.ca and lead them to a page where it just gives you the basics about a good god about a good father about one who takes away guilt and sin it'll be very very simple won't be seeker friendly but will be very friendly or whatever it'll be good carry two of them in your wallet 
just in case you meet someone you're never going to meet again who showed some interest. Evangelism can be approached two ways, full of grace or full of legalism, and both are not all that effective. It has to be all these together. In uh, Philippians, Paul says that some preach out of um, envy, some preach out of strife, some preach out of uh, different reasons, regardless of what be the motive that a person preaches the gospel from. He says, I'm glad that the word of God is going forth. While that is true, why not aim for the more excellent way? And the more excellent ways incorporates all these. People who emphasize grace will usually choose the last three points. Sorry, people who emphasize grace will choose the first three points. Being relational, trying to gauge where people are. That's what people who are full of grace will do. People who have a bent towards being a little more legalistic will go for the last three. I've got to give the message with clarity. I've got to tell them about Jesus. I've got to do this. Both will help the spread of the gospel. But what if we combined all six? Do both. Can't be one or the other. I usually end up in the top three. I want to be gracious. I want to tell them about what Jesus intended for them. And in the process, what happens is I miss out on the core of the matter. But then Gisela might be someone who goes straight for the core of the matter. Where she'll say, you need Christ, otherwise you're going to hell. Both of us can get people saved. She's gotten people saved by saying that. I've gotten people saved by using the other method. But what if Gisela and I combined our methods? Where I have the audacity and the courage to go and say to somebody, hey, listen, you need Jesus right now. Let me tell you what Jesus can do for you. And Gisela takes on my uh, strong points, which is, let me gauge where this person is at. Maybe I can say this instead of this. What if we combine? This would be potent. Where I have her courage and she has uh, my whatever. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. What if we combine both? Yeah, combine both. Do both and then you'll have what is called the most excellent way. And the most excellent way is always Christ's way. Any questions, guys? Anything you want to add to this? Anything you want to add to this that will make this more effective? Any questions on this? Yeah, I've mentioned that. Anything you want to add to this? Any questions on it? Okay. We'll stop here. We'll do uh, right standing next time and then we'll do right living and public lordship. So you can take people through these stages. If you were marooned on an island with another person and had about six months to work through this. And when you're hungry, you will say, it is, I have meat and bread that you know not of. Till the other person gets so hungry that you begin to swim. 
that story was going way way off so i thought i better end it yep so i want to call mark up there should be another mic somewhere Okay, so my first question to you, Mark, is um, why do you go read notes at home? Because I forget stuff. I'm not very smart. Okay, and so you go read the things at home, and uh, what do you do with it then? Um, so I'll make notes, or so obviously we can't write down everything that you say. Mm -hmm. Sunday, or from what my notes are on Sunday, and then I remember things not so much. Um, I don't remember so much uh, from the notes, but I remember what he says because of the notes. Does that make sense? That you make a note saying he just these are the these are the points, and you read the notes and say, oh yeah, that's what he was talking about. He is talking about this, and so on. So you you have this friend called Jeff. Who? Yeah, my coworker's name is Gavin. We call him Jeff sometimes. Okay, I was trying to hide his name, man. Okay, so <laughs> now that the cat is out of the bag, okay, so uh, I can call him all sorts of stuff. That okay. helps. So, um, what was the first encounter with him? Because uh, how did it all begin when he started? How, how did you begin this uh, talk about you and God and him? How did um, it start? Uh, well. He's been working for us for two years. It started pretty much a first day that, um, so on our sites, we keep swearing down, or we don't swear because uh, my boss are Christian. Uh, my coworkers are Christian except for him. We'll call him Jeff, just so he's, uh, so nobody knows him. And, um, and um, when he arrived on site, then, Every second word was a swear word and whatnot all. And it was, and that his first day was a Friday. And so on Fridays, and quite often, we'll go out for a burger together. Um, and so we went for a burger. And, and that um, my boss had stopped at Coa and uh, stopped to pick up gas. And that we were sitting and we were chatting. And we, we have, we, we pray before we eat. And we were talking about different trades and different things going on. Nobody swore, nobody bought a beer, nobody did any of these things. And he was floored. Just like, I cannot believe that you guys are in the construction industry and you guys don't do this stuff. Um, and then uh, my boss phoned co-op back because he had paid for $45 worth of gas and he had got 60, and that he had been, uh, that his receipt said 63 because he, he, drew, he phoned them up and said, I'll come back in if need be. And my, my coworker, Jeff, was just astonished that somebody would do this. Like a gas station, you get ripped off there anyways. You got 15 extra bucks worth of gas. And here is this, these guys that are 
talk like nobody else in the construction industry I've ever known and that this is that they're completely honest and they're completely yeah they're completely Cu cultural honest. principles guys where truths that are practiced when a group of people practice it it becomes a culture that becomes visible cultures are always visible go to Saudi Arabia you will see it go to Indonesia, you will see it. Go to India, you will see it. A whole culture behaves a certain way. And it becomes very visible. So what happened with him and his swearing and his uh, stuff? Because you were telling me about how he now goes and talks to. Yeah, so um, he's, he comes from an extremely rough background. And I mean, I... An extremely rough background. I don't know how else to say it, but um, without getting into a lot of the details. But um, and his friends, the people he hangs out with, he hangs out with them on a regular basis, and that they're very, very rough. That um, if you needed, if you needed something done outside the law, he knows who to talk to. Um, and these people would be extremely willing to help. Um, and, um, but one day one of his friends showed up at his, at his house and that they were gonna do something. And he was wearing a shirt that said, um, that uh, said something extremely terrible about Jesus. And, um, and that because in the last two years, Gavin or Jeff has been with us for this time and that We've had multiple talks, almost on a daily basis, of who God is, who Jesus is. If there's any question about religion, he'll, he'll ask, because the, he hides nothing. Um, playing poker with him would be just great, because you know, you know he's not bluffing <laughs> ever. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Anyways, um, but yeah, if you have a, if I were to ask him what, what drugs have you tried? He'll list off everything and every side effect, which was good, which was bad, which one, um, you ask him whatever, you know, and he's very willing to give you whatever, whatever answer. So See, what did he do when he saw this t-shirt? Uh, so yeah, his friend was wearing this t-shirt that said something very terrible about Jesus. And he said, you know what? I know this is, sounds, this sounds, pretty messed up, but I need you to flip that shirt inside out. I can't read that. That can't be in my house. And his friends started making fun of him and said, oh, you of all people, like, you know that you go out of your way to offend people. You know that this shirt is just, it's offensive, but it's just, it's enjoyable for us. And he said, no, but the guys I work with, that this is important to them and that I see it in their lives. So I see it on a daily basis that this is something that is special to them. This is something that changes their life. This is something that is value to them. And because it's value to them that I look at their lives and I recognize that there's something going on in there. And so like, I need you to flip that shirt around because yeah, it's offensive, but it's offensive because it's offensive. And, and it offends me because my friends would be offended by it. So he's standing up for my beliefs, even though he doesn't necessarily believe. It's 
kind of a strange thing. But... So is he a religious guy? Um, yeah, yes-ish, no-ish. Um, he's, uh, he... I, I don't know how to answer that. He'd be uh, a faithful agnostic. He'd, I mean, the weird thing is this, that he prays before, like when we sit down at, on Friday and we ate on Friday, that he bows his head and he, he'll pray. He talks about praying, though he's not sure or certain who he's praying to or what he's praying to, that he'll say, oh, I was learning about stuff that you know about. Like, oh, well, what's that? Well, about different religions and, um, and telling me about various religions and uh, how there's all these different types of Christian or how... I don't know, like, I think he was on Wikipedia or something like that and learning about Christianity or just about religion in general. Has he visited your home? No, he lives in Mission, so he's a ways away. So does he have other Christian friends other than you guys? No. Um, well, I think he's gone to Sunday school. Like, he has the understanding that Jesus is in some way really special in the Christian religion. Um... But how far have you gone and have you guys gone, not just you, in presenting who Jesus is to him? Um, okay, so that doctrine thing, <laughs> pretty much all of that. You have already done that. Yeah, so the deity of Christ, because if he's asking, he wants an answer. And so I'll give him an answer. The, the, always the difficult thing is these things take a while to explain. And that every time it's like, okay, we've got a really important deadline to meet and you have your job to do and I have my job to do and your job is over there and my job is over here and this will take a long time so can we how just... long have you been talking to him about it oh for like from the from the day that we how long months I don't know 24 now 24 months from, from the first day he started that so he was asking questions. Do you think he's received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? As Savior and Lord? I don't think so. He knows better who Jesus is. Um, and he holds him in high regard because of us. Because he sees it in our lives. And he sees, he recognizes also that, like, because he's met all my kids. He's met Rhonda and he's met um, all of our other coworkers' families because everybody's kind of around. Um, and he sees in our families, he sees how our kids behave, how our kids talk, and he recognizes, like, this is something that is a, like, it's a completely different culture than what I'm in, and that your kids behave this way. If my kids would behave this way, this would be awesome. But my kids don't behave this way. They behave this way. Um, because this is what I permit for them. Does that make sense? Like he sees what's going on, but he also acknowledges that there's a different that there's a difference in his life. Okay, so here's a question, guys. I, I, if I called any of you up, you could share stories like this, eh? From your warehouse, from your workplace, from your teller's office, from wherever you work, you could have stories like this. My question is this: Two years, uh, this person has been exposed to Christianity, uh, the way of Christian living. So my question is this. 
more than one question. One, is there something called leading a person to make a decision or is that something that we invented? That's the first question. Is there something called leading a person to make a decision for Jesus Christ or is that something we invented? Invented. Yeah, so is there something... Um, so guys, uh, take turns and speak loudly if you are... Do, 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 do we need to lead a person to make a decision saying, you need to make a decision now? Or is that something that... It's a Western concept that we came up with. Leave it to the Holy Spirit? My little sister just into the kingdom. Okay. Okay. Anyone else? There's a time and place for both? Yeah. But go ahead. Keep on praying. Keep on sowing. Someone will water. Because my thing often was to make a person come to a, you need to make a decision now. But over the last little while, I'm not sure that that is the best way to go. Yeah, and uh, I know that Peter did speak to, uh, in Acts chapter 3, he gets up and says, repent and uh, be baptized, and thousands of people come. So there is something called an invitation, but I don't know whether there is, if you want to decide for Christ now, lift up your hands. I don't know if that is the way to go. I'm not convinced that it is not. See, this is what I mean by dissecting something, okay? Because I'm not convinced that that is not the way to go because I've seen its effectiveness. But does something being effective mean it is right? I think maybe when you offer, the wording should be in a different sense. sense. Not saying that come now, right now. Yeah. The wording should be in a sense that, okay, if you think you're ready, please come forward. We are here too. Yeah. And then the question is, is coming forward, is that the way to do it? How does this work? How does it tie, it tie in with if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth? How does that tie in? When, if you don't ask them to uh, ask someone to make a decision and say publicly that I want to receive Christ, where is the open confession? Or is there the need for an open confession? Any answers on that? Coming forward would be also an open, uh, what do you call accepting, acknowledging God. Openly. Yeah. So it, it's not very clear-cut, guys, and I'm still not sure about it. And I would suggest that when you can't discern, go for a formula, but try to discern. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm trying to figure it out and I don't know what to do. Everything. Diana, go ahead. Good. Okay, so to, to leave people with a question, 
uh, or, or some kind of an invitation that brings them to having to choose. Anyone else? There has. Can you think about this and think about it seriously, guys? Because I, I don't want to come up with a formula, but we have to think about this. Yeah. No, I understand the prayer part, Gisela, and I agree with you that um, the word of God does not come back void. But when it comes to making a uh, choosing, uh, when it comes to acknowledging sin, God will never force you to. And so, yes, I think it's important to present the, present the truth. But my question is, after presenting the truth, at what point, uh, like Diana was saying, do you help the person uh, with, uh, do you present the person with a choice? There's something about presenting a person with the choice that we have to learn how to do from a very godly perspective. And I would suggest to you that you really think about it because, um, and think about it not to make it a doctrine, think about it so that you think about it. That Father, when I look at scriptures, when I look at how Jesus operated, when I look at how Paul operated, can you give me a basic idea of how you think so that I begin to think like you think. Because I was at a service not too long ago where a man uh, g gave an altar call and I find this altar call idea almost archaic now, almost out of place. Where the lights are dimmed and uh, I see that hand now, I see that hand now and, and, and it makes me... <sighs> and yet when you see three hands go up and people get saved, you think to yourself, oh shucks. But it did happen. So I don't know when to say throw out this entire thing or to keep some of it. So please think about it. Because this is something this church will enter into. You want to say something. You look like you're itching to say something. Okay. Okay. Good point. Can you say that again on the mic? Is it still being taped? Okay. Thanks. Um, I said I was wondering if this is similar to what you had said about uh, Billy Graham and evangelists and how this church has no evangelists because the expectation is that the whole body will be doing that work and not a single person and altar calls may be used as a replacement for the whole body stepping up and acting in relationship with people and offering that choice or offering that prerogative based on where they're at instead of like having to be done in a service on a Sunday. Yes, where it becomes us the evangelists yeah. going out building relationships and thereby not having to give an altar call because we are building it through 
relationship. And in the process, we present a choice. And that choice allows the person to come to a place of decision whenever the person has to make that decision. Because this is one thing that Jesus never forced. Following him um, and surrendering to him as Savior and Lord was something he never forced. Never forced. It had to be a free will choice because you take away free will from it and ruins the entire thing. And the reason we need to really talk about stuff like this and next week maybe I'll call somebody else because all, I mean, isn't it great that we have this guy called Mark the Evangelist and Jillian the Evangelist and Aaron the Evangelist and Sheldon the Evangelist uh, and you can't pinpoint anyone who is not because this is our call. This is where we must go, guys. And this is where God's calling us, huh? We must go here. Yeah. Yeah. And keep learning. But it's a kingdom culture that we have to be adopted into. Yeah. And that Jeff is growing into the kingdom culture, right? So I can see the kingdom culture. Oh, sorry. So, um, do I have to start again? <laughs> Anyways, okay, uh, we're talking about kingdom culture and that we have the world's culture and we have a kingdom culture and the kingdom culture can be evidenced, needs to be evidenced in our lives. But we have to have our kingdom culture. Um, so my coworker is able to discern kingdom culture from church culture. What somebody put on 106.5 yes, the other day on Friday and that the, the moment the announcers came on that there was a lot of yelling um, because it's just he could, was able to discern falsehood immediately. That there's a, a certain kingdom, there's a certain culture to the church that he doesn't like. There's a, king, a culture within, I mean, we, we, within Canada, within our church community, within Acts 29, that there's a church culture a kingdom culture that is true, that is right, that people look at and say, this is what I want. But then at the same time, there's their, the world's culture and the, the culture that they're into that they say, well, you know, but I really like doing drugs and I really like not having to go to church. I think the point Mark is trying to make is that this guy sees a way a certain people are living and he is beginning to embrace that. I pray God that when it comes to us as a body and may this body keep growing so that more and more uh, are uh, embraced in it, I pray that there be no difference between what we do uh, out there and in here. There can't be a difference. There should not be a difference. This is just one of the activities of a people called the people of God. May there be no difference so that there's no two cultures called kingdom and church, that it be one and that people be embraced into this, that it keeps growing, keeps growing. Guys, keep me in line and I'll keep you in line. You, you have, uh, what awaits us is glorious. I know I've said that at different points in our lives, but I'm saying that again to you. What awaits us is glorious. A normal God is going to function through a very ordinary people. Look at him. Can they come more ordinary? I got a haircut. 
That was his distinguishing thing this week. He got a haircut. You see how ordinary he is. But he is evangelist Mark. And Jeff is going to be affected by it. So let's just sing the King of Love and then we'll go home. When you come to my lover's breath is sweetest wine, know that it is in the Song of Songs. I didn't come up with it. <laughs>